Creative Babble. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In July 1988, a Southern Methodist University student, Helen Barbright, was having a normal day for a college student. She was working her summer job. She was hanging out with friends. She went to go see a movie at a local theater. Dave Boucher and Lauren McGahee are investigative reporters who spent more than a year reporting on the story you're about to listen to. Their two-part series, titled The Memory Room, is about the case of Helen Barbray, a Texas college student who was savagely attacked in the middle of the night. Barbary says that she couldn't recognize her attacker, so she used hypnosis to identify him. Hours later, Barbara wakes up in her small apartment in Dallas and sees somebody standing in her bedroom. Uh, Within a matter of a couple of minutes, that person quickly comes across the room and starts to bludgeon her in the head. Uh, The attack is brutal, it's quick, she's screaming, she's fighting back. The attacker never says anything and within three minutes of her waking up and seeing the attack happening, this person leaves her room. Was she sleeping or was she awake when this attack happened? So she was she was asleep. It was dark. I mean, imagine being in your bed and opening your eyes and having seeing someone in your room. I mean, it's everyone's worst nightmare. At first, she said she thought maybe it was like a trick of the trick of her eyes because it was dark. And then this figure realizes she's awake and crosses the room and starts to attack her. Head wounds are incredibly bloody. Even a minor cut can cause a person to bleed profusely. It must have been really hard to make sense out of it all. What just happened? Who would want to hurt me? Did I know the attacker? All of these questions must have been swirling in Helen's mind. Before we dive deep on the attack itself, let's rewind and talk about something noteworthy that happened earlier that evening. A security guard for the apartment complex she lived in noticed Barbary's apartment patio door wide open. It was late, about 12.30 in the morning, so he decided to check in and make sure everything was okay. Barbary answered the door and the two chatted for about 15 minutes. Seems like the friendly thing to do, right? Except Barbary claims that she was uncomfortable with where the conversation was heading. According to her, Danny Ray King, the African-American security guard, said he preferred white women because they were better at oral sex. The conversation ended quickly after that. And so she asked the guard to leave, and he does. After the attack, she provided police with very few details about the attacker. What did Barbara remember from that night? Her story evolved over time, but immediately after the attack, she told police that it was dark. She told police that someone had attacked her, that it was a black man. 
And she said that he was built like the security guard. So in the initial police report, it does not say the security guard attacked me. It says I was attacked by a black man who was built like the security guard. How did the attacker get into her apartment in the first place? Was it a break-in? Did he have a key? So there's no evidence to indicate how the attacker got into the apartment because in part because police never dusted for fingerprints. They took only like rudimentary photographs after the fact. They didn't test any of the blood that was on the scene and they never tested the door. And Dave, knowing that they didn't collect any evidence, knowing that they didn't talk to any witnesses, and really we she has a vague description of the attacker, how does law enforcement even move forward with this? That's a great question. And I think if they had the exact same circumstances today, they wouldn't bring the case because of a, quote, lack of evidence. Because they didn't collect any evidence, the police had very little to go on, except for a hunch. Helen Barbary said that the attacker had a similar build as a security guard. Maybe we should look at this guy. She said that her attacker was built like him. Then over the next few weeks, they obviously considered him a suspect because he came up in, in that initial interaction. He was there earlier. She said that her attacker was built like him. But she never in those first few weeks after the attack explicitly said, according to police records, my attacker is was the security guard. That was never explicitly stated according to the records that we have. So all of this hinges on Barbara's eventual identification of Danny Ray King, the security guard, as the person who attacked her. And that never happens until hypnosis. Danny Ray King was sentenced to 60 years in prison for a crime that he may or may not have committed. The most damning evidence against him came after the witness underwent a hypnosis session and identified him in a lineup. Many people assume that hypnosis isn't allowed as evidence in court, and that's not necessarily true. There are several states that still allow hypnosis as a form of investigative evidence. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend, stories about real people pretending to be someone else. just discovered a new show and I want to tell you all about it. If you love Pretend, you're going to love this new podcast called Caper. It's an exciting globe-trotting show for people who like mysteries, thrillers, and non-violent true crime like this show. It's a collection of international heist stories. Caper takes you around the world to tell you stories like the diamond heist in Antwerp, Belgium, or to one of the largest bank robberies in China's history. But here's the best part. Caper is produced in English, Spanish, German, and Italian. It's Studio Ochenta's first true crime series. I love it. 10 10-minute episodes air weekly on Wednesdays. You have to listen to the trailer now. Go download the Caper podcast in whatever language you choose on whatever platform you choose. 
Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. We've all watched Dateline or listened to some bloody true crime podcasts. It almost always ends with murder, but not this story. The victim, Helen Barbary, survives her attack. Putting aside how traumatic it must have been to be woken up in the middle of the night to someone attacking you, Helen Barbary lived to tell her story and only really suffered some minor injuries. This is a, an attack with some sort of blunt object repeatedly over the head while Barbara is again kicking and screaming and eventually the attacker leaves. And I mean, oftentimes head wounds look really, really bad because of the amount of blood. When first responders came to her apartment, they were actually washing her head out in the sink in her kitchen before they transported her to the hospital and they were speaking with her. And Dave, was anything stolen or was there any sexual attack? So just focusing on the three minutes when Barbara wakes up, sees the person in her room is, and is attacked, there was nothing that she reported missing from her room. Again, the attacker didn't say anything. The attacker didn't make any sort of advances. There was no evidence of any sort of sexual assault or anything to do with sex at all. Let me sum this up. So there was a break-in, but no signs of a robbery. Helen Barbary was struck in the head, but wasn't sexually assaulted. The police collected very little evidence that night. So where do investigators go from here? So essentially, the Dallas police detective, David Singer, suspends the case for a lack of evidence. And at the same time, Barbary is kind of like not pestering, but calling them and following up, being like, what's going on? How come you can't find this person? And, and we're going to get into that. But before we do, I want to I want to talk about the security guard, Danny Ray King. Sure. Who is Danny Ray King and what did he do at the apartment? Yeah. So Danny Ray King is born and raised in Texas at the time, had a wife and a young son, according to his family and his friends, always wanted to be a cop. He at the time was working as a security guard in Dallas, but he was also training to be a police officer. He was a uh, acting as a security guard for this private company. And then he was trying to train up so that he could eventually become a full-time police officer and do that for his work. And Lauren, did he have any criminal record that we know of or any history of violence? No, Danny Ray King, um, at the time, he had no criminal record. Um, There had been- But just because he didn't have a criminal record doesn't mean that there were no complaints against him. And this part is worth noting. Months before this incident at Helen Barbary's apartment, another young woman came forward and said that Danny Ray King had climbed into her window 
Danny Ray King was also a security guard at this young woman's apartment complex. Basically, a 15-year-old girl told police that Danny Ray King climbed through her bedroom window just to talk with her. King says that this never happened. If anything, these accusations are just payback because he broke up a party with underage drinkers the night before. At the time, police did not take the girl's account seriously, and no charges were ever filed. But this incident came back to haunt him. Now, we spoke to the young woman. We spoke, in that case, we spoke with Danny Ray King about this incident. His recollection was that he went to the apartment complex where there was a number of underage kids drinking and that he broke up a party and that this police report was her getting back at him for that. We talked to her and 30 years later, she still says she she stands by what she said, that Danny Ray King climbed through her window and made a verbal sexual advance on her that she rebuffed him and he left. But in terms of a criminal history, he was never charged with anything. So that was the only thing in his past that we could find. Dave, what does Danny Ray King remember from that night when he was asked about it? Yeah. So he has relived this night for years, right? So he recalls being on his rounds. It was a night shift. So he remembers patrolling that area. And he had been to this apartment recently before that night because the people who had lived there had been locked out of their apartment. It was Barbara and her roommate. And so he had let them in and had interacted before with the roommate in the past. So he drove by this apartment area and noted that the patio door, the door, the sliding door of this second story apartment was open. And it was late at night. It was after midnight. So he thought that that was a little bit strange. So he went up and knocked on the door. Barbara answers. He Both of them agreed that this, that this happened, that he knocked and Barbara answered. He said he wanted to check to make sure that everything was okay. But he also agrees that it was about a 15 minute interaction, that they had a conversation and that he eventually left. She says that he made inappropriate comments about white women and oral sex. He says that he didn't say that and that she started making comments to him that were perhaps sexual in nature. And then he ends up leaving. So, Lauren, you said that in the initial report, she does describe the build of the suspect as being similar to the security guard. Did the police immediately interview Danny King? They interviewed him about 10 days later. Keep in mind, this is 10 days after the attack. The police had no physical evidence because, remember, they decided not to call the crime scene investigators the night of the attack. There was a lot of blood. There could have been fingerprints. And then they allowed Barbara's friends to enter the apartment and her friends actually cleaned up the scene and eradicating a lot of the evidence. So at this point, the detectives kind of know that they're they're already a little bit on their back foot. So they interview him 10 days after the attack, but then 17 days after the attack, police have her pick someone up from a lineup. And who did that lineup consist of? So they had Danny Ray King, the security guard, and five other black men in the lineup. And they first asked her to pick out who, if, if she can see the person who attacked her in the lineup. And she says no. Then they ask her if she can pick out the person who came to her apartment hours before the attack. And she says no. So they, they asked these back-to-back questions using the same lineup featuring King and five other black men. And she can't identify her attacker or the man that came to her apartment the night of her attack. Wait a minute. So she didn't recognize King, who had just been there moments before, and they had a 15-minute conversation? 
in this lineup that happened, as you noted, about 17 days after the attack, no, she couldn't pick out King. Not only not only King is her attacker, but could not pick him out as the man who had come to her apartment earlier the night of the attack. That's interesting. I, I kind of figured that King was always in the back of her head. The police moved on, but Helen Barbary could not. There's no doubt that she suffered a very traumatic event, and that's not easy to shake off. So she went to go see a therapist for help. The counselor suggested to try hypnosis. That's when the case really took off. And she talks to the police about it, and then they say, well, wait a minute, why don't we do this from an investigative perspective and come in and maybe that can help us get new evidence that can lead to possibly finding the person who attacked you. Law enforcement has hit a dead end, right? But then it clicks and, hey, we could use hypnosis as an investigative tool. But what is investigative hypnosis? Is that like a real thing? The concept is a real thing, absolutely. And there were people who, to us and to this day, will swear that this is a real thing that solves real crimes and helps people essentially when they meet a dead end. So the concept of forensic hypnosis is using somebody who is trained as a hypnotist to kind of walk through generally witnesses or victims of a crime, walk them through something that might have happened in order to glean additional details that perhaps they were not able to remember or recount from the, the time of the event. We've, we've found, especially in Texas, where we were able to get more records, that it kind of ran the gambit about when police decided to deploy this technique. We can generally say, though, that frequently it was used when investigations hit a dead end, which is what happened in this Barbary case and what we saw happened in, in cold cases and in other cases where this technique was deployed. Yeah, to me, this sounds like when you listen to a true crime podcast and you hear that a law enforcement exhausted all their resources, so they bring in a psychic. You know, it just seems like that desperation to try to solve the case. But I mean, knowing that, that that's a tool in their arsenal, what are the dangers of investigative hypnosis from your from your reporting and from your point of view? So we talked earlier about hypnosis being used as a, a therapeutic tool, and it, doctors have used it for decades when we talk about trying to quit smoking or end some other habit that you don't want to be doing anymore. And, you know, a lot of people agree that it can, it can be helpful. And it's also used for trauma. It's kind of a calming, detached place, right, from your emotions. Investigative hypnosis, which is performed most of the time by a law enforcement officer and not a psychologist or a psychiatrist is solely for the purpose of recounting a memory or sharpening a memory that is not sharp enough in the police view. And that is where the problem lies. And that's because hypnosis as a concept is it is based on suggestion. I am the hypnotist. I am going to put you in a relaxed state and suggest you do something or you don't do something. And that is the same for stage hypnosis and for investigative hypnosis when a, when a police officer is using it. His purpose is to put the victim or witness under a hypnotic trance so that he can tell them that they are going to better recall a memory. The problem, though, that we know now based on our most current uh, scientific research is that memories are not encoded or recorded in our brain like a video. 
Like we talked about in our last episodes, you just can't rewind the tape in your brain, play it back, and remember exactly what happened. That's just not how memory works. But that is what police are telling victims and witnesses in these hypnosis sessions when they're trying to recall the details of a crime. When we come back, Helen Barbary undergoes hypnosis to try to identify her attacker. And Danny Ray King's future as a free man is in jeopardy. Help you relax as we get into this. You're doing very well. All right, Brooke. As I visit with you, I just want you to kind of continue exactly what you're doing. You're listening to actual audio of an investigative hypnosis session conducted by Texas law enforcement. We are here to help you that you are safe and secure. In this video, a Texas ranger performs hypnosis on a victim of aggravated assault. We will just help you relax more and more. My voice may fade in and out. In Texas, they repeatedly used this this specific paradigm called the memory room, which was the title for our series, where they ask someone to walk down a set of stairs and every stair they get sleepier and sleepier. And at the bottom, there is a door and that door opens the memory room. And in that room, the police officer tells this person that they can watch a recording of their memory. But the problem is, These people aren't watching a recording of a memory. They could quite possibly be creating a memory. A memory so vivid that when they snap out of it, will feel undeniably real. That is actually creating a memory that is not a true memory, a false memory. People that undergo hypnosis and create a false memory actually believe more strongly that that memory happened because they quote-unquote remembered it during hypnosis, and that is called memory cementation. Hypnosis in the context of a criminal investigation is not an innocent little exercise. It can have some really serious implications. First, people under hypnosis are more open to suggestion. That's the point of hypnosis, right? I'm going to suggest something to you. I would imagine that uh, for a victim, you could even re-victimize the victim and make it even more tragic than it really was. You know? Right. I mean, in some of these sessions, I mean, Helen Barbray was was visibly emotional in her hypnosis session. She's being asked to relive a very traumatic event. And it's important to remember that while these police officers are trained in hypnosis, they are not psychologists. They are not psychiatrists. Their purpose is to try to get her to give them more information. It is not necessarily to deal with a victim who is reliving something that is oftentimes the worst thing that ever happened to this person. I want to ask, because I think this was the the most eye-opening part of your investigation, which was how often hypnosis, to your knowledge, is used, specifically in Dallas by the police department. When we look at how often hypnosis is used, it's really important to note that, the, especially in Texas, that the requirements for tracking it and making sure that you put down how often it's used in investigation are vague. At best, we know that from 1988, there were 874 law enforcement officers in the state who were certified to do hypnosis. But we also know that it's not required to have this certification in order to be an investigative hypnotist. We know that the Texas Rangers 
used hypnosis close to 1,800 times. We also know that the records that they provided us were incomplete and that the dozens of other departments, police departments, who had certified hypnotists didn't keep records the same way that the Texas Rangers used. What we know is the floor of how often this is used, but we knew it was used hundreds of times in any sort of investigation, be it from a murder to a rape to a missing person to a missing million-dollar diamond ring to how a kid got a scratch on his body. They used it for any sort of investigation. It's also really important to note that it's not just like the Dallas Police Department or the Texas Rangers who, who are using this hypnotist. For all we know, they never used hypnotists although they had them on staff and at times highlighted that they were on staff, or they used them all the time for all sorts of investigations, and we just never found out. Let's return to the Helen Barbary case. What is the result of her hypnosis session? Was she able to identify the attacker? Now they've undergone hypnosis. Her memory seems sharper to her. She feels like she can identify somebody, who does she identify after the hypnosis session? So Helen Barbray comes out of this this hypnosis session with a, with a police detective, and she is shown the same lineup that she was shown weeks before. So we have to remember 17 days after the attack, she was shown a lineup of six men that included Danny Ray King, and she could not identify her attacker. Now we are 100 days after the attack. She's just undergone hypnosis. She's shown the same lineup and she points to Danny Ray King and says, that's him. And it's important to note that best practices for lineups, the people in the lineup need to be dressed similarly, positioned similarly. You're not supposed to be indicating to, to the victim or the witness who they should pick. But in this lineup, Danny Ray King was the only individual wearing a collared shirt. And that's important because one of the few details that Helen Barbary remembered about her attacker is that he was wearing a collared shirt. Whether it was intentional, whether it was not intentional, it may, we, we won't ever know, but it may have been another clue, a signal in Helen Barbary's brain that she should have chosen this person. Now that she points him out from a lineup, what happens next? What happens to Danny King? Pretty quickly thereafter, he is arrested by the police. Now, he's not arrested for assault or uh, or any sort of uh, attack like that. He's, he's charged with burglary with a deadly weapon. Assault with a deadly weapon. Remember, no one died, and we don't even know what the weapon was, let alone who was wielding that weapon. But none of that mattered because Danny Ray King was arrested anyway. Yeah, this incident destroys his family, right? Yeah, I think that that's really fair to say. Lauren talked much more with the family, but down the road, he gets divorced from his wife. He doesn't really have a relationship with his children. One of his kids was about four months old at the time of the trial, so he doesn't he doesn't know him. Forget the hypnosis. Forget they said it was with a deadly weapon. How do they even know what weapon was used? They don't have evidence of any weapons, do they? They don't. And in fact, they they went to Danny Ray King's house after the attack. I want to say it was about 14 days after the attack and took his flashlight. He's a security guard. He's issued a flashlight. They took his flashlight. They did testing on the flashlight and they didn't find any blood. Now, obviously, this this happened a long time after the assault. So in theory, 
you know, a flashlight could be cleaned or not. Yeah, well, if if you're led to believe that that a security guard assaulted you, then you start thinking about the things the security guards carry around with them and, and you start piecing together a narrative. That's my personal problem with hypnosis. It, it's like a revisionist memory. You know, you're, you're constructing a memory afterwards that may or may not be true. Danny Ray King goes to trial. The most damning evidence against him is the result of the hypnosis session. Surely this won't hold up in court, right? We'll find out after the break. Tell me about the trial and and the jury specifically, because I thought the makeup of the jury was pretty interesting. We actually heard about this case from one of the jurors. It was the it was the way that we discovered that this case even existed. A reader reached out to us and said, "Hey, I sat on a jury in the in the late '80s. We didn't have any physical evidence. It was it was a, an identification made after hypnosis." I, I think one of the most interesting parts of trials is jury selection, right? And the different things that the prosecution and defense can do to choose the jury. Helen Barber took the stand and was very, very clear that she said on the stand, I always knew it was him, which obviously is contrary to what was in the police reports. And when we talk about the defense attorney in the in the juror's recollection, did not do a great job. They talked about him seeming kind of disheveled and disarray, that he he didn't look very professional. And he made some key errors um, during the course of the trial, resulted in his client getting the the amount of time he got and and just further steered the the jury into the arms of the prosecutors and, and away from any kind of belief that Danny Ray King may not have been the attacker. It was seven men, five women. 10 people were white, one person was black, and one person, and, and quoting prosecutors, was a, quote, oriental girl. And the prosecutors picked these people to be on the jury, right? They bounced essentially every black juror that they could, and they argued that they bounced them due to sort of just essentially made up reasons. They said one person was chewing gum and one person was falling asleep. But Dallas has a history of, of doing this. The, the prosecution did a very good job of creating a narrative and telling a story. And that really resonated with the jurors. You know, the prosecution used the word scary to describe Danny Ray King in their closing arguments. And one of the jurors that Lauren spoke to said that Danny Ray King looked mean. Like that's what she remembers 30 years after the trial, not this minutia about whether or not hypnosis is a, is a good tactic. She remembers that he looks mean. They also implied that there was a sexual motivation to the attack. Helen Barbray never said anything about a sexual nature. She never said he said anything sexual, but they implied that he was a scary black man who was there to attack and rape a white young college student. And that really, really resonated with the jury. In a city with a very large black population, with a black defendant, we have one black individual sitting on the jury. And as long we to this day, as long as a prosecutor can argue that they removed someone from a jury, not because of race, but because of something else, then it's very difficult to argue that race was the reason, was that was the core reason why that person was bounced. But you have to wonder 
when the makeup of the jury doesn't reflect the city, then that individual on the stand is not going to get a fair, fair shake. And talk about a fair shake. I mean, the verdict came unanimously guilty, right? And the jury told us that that scary black guy narrative really spoke to the jury. So all of them, even the juror who contacted you said, Danny King is guilty. You know, we convicted this guy. I convicted this guy and gave him 60 years for a crime. And regardless of whether he was innocent or not, he was convicted based upon bogus evidence that should not have been admitted possibly. So if that's the case, then a great injustice has been done here. Now, 30 years later, he recognizes that. He sees that and he said, he actually said, I think we made a, might have made a mistake. And how many years did he end up serving in prison? He was eventually convicted. Again, he was not convicted of assault or attempted rape or attempted murder. He was convicted of burglary with a deadly weapon. He was eventually given 60 years in prison for this. He had no criminal history, nothing on his record. So this was his first criminal offense and he he was sentenced to 60 years for burglary with a deadly weapon. I mean, not even homicides get that much time sometimes, which is shocking. Wow. In this political world that we live in, nobody can agree on the color of the sky, right? I mean, nobody can agree on anything. But in Texas, such a divided legislature, they were able to agree that evidence from hypnosis should not be used in trial unanimously. This past session, they took up the issue of investigative hypnosis. You're right, both chambers unanimously approved a piece of legislation and sent it to the governor that would have radically cut down on using evidence gleaned from a hypnosis session in a court of law. This is a big deal because the bill wouldn't have banned police from using hypnosis as part of their investigation, but it would have prevented the results from ever being used as evidence in court. It was sent to Governor Greg Abbott, who is a Republican here in Texas, and we were all waiting to see what he was going to do with it. And then we found out a few months ago that he vetoed the bill, an unanimously passed bill, and he vetoed it. That bill took years to pass. It took the efforts of a, a state senator. It took arguably some of the evidence that we brought forward in our investigation for it to to gain traction. And with one swipe of of his pen, you know, a single man can can really He does. He determines what becomes law in Texas and and he killed it. And and it's worth noting, too, that he could he could put that bill on call for special sessions, which he's called multiple special sessions and has not. And if he had a problem with it, they could have he could have signed that bill into law and the lawmakers could have tweaked whatever he wanted them to tweak. Interesting times to live in Texas, for sure. (laughs) Um, I know that you guys both reached out to Helen Barbary. Right. And what was that like? Obviously, it was really important for us to touch base with uh, Barbara and just to let her know we were working on this and to get her perspective. So we reached out multiple times. Lauren was able to to very briefly speak with her on the phone. And the, the, the crux of what she said was that she's it's still a very raw, emotional event in her life. 
still very traumatic. Just talking about it was very traumatic for her. But she thinks that the police did a good job and that Danny Ray King did commit this crime. She said, quote, you can't do a lineup and correctly identify somebody if they all look the same. The crux of this is that Barbara stands by her testimony. She stands by that King attacked her and she believes that the verdict was correct. Danny Ray King, where is he now? We wanted to know what Danny Ray King's 30 years behind bars had been like. He was in a state prison. We went and visited him. We interviewed him about his experience that night, about the 30 years since then, how he's lost touch with his family, how he and his wife had been divorced. We started asking the prison agency about his time behind bars. He had no real problems with his behavior. He had been up for parole several times and had been denied several times. Um, so we wanted to dig a little bit more into those parole records and we're, we're asking about the parole. And as we were reporting and writing the story on uh, this last piece of it on, you know, Danny Ray King's uh, time behind bars, he actually came up for parole and was approved for release. And what was really interesting for us about that was uh, one of the people on the parole board who had just uh, the year before denied him for parole, this time around approved him. Lauren and Dave won't admit it, but it is undeniable that their investigative reporting had a huge impact on Danny Ray King being released. It's also reasonable to say that the bill designed to ban hypnosis as evidence in court is largely due to the critical attention brought on by their series. It's excellent work and you should check it out. I'll have a link in the show notes. Oh, I got butterflies. I'm so excited. And it, I don't know, I'm just overjoyed. I'm just happy that I was able to live to see my brother get out of the prison. So this is March of 2020, actually went to Hutchins State Jail in Dallas and were there when Mr. King was released after 30 years behind bars. And this was the first time that he had seen his younger son in years. He actually told us that he didn't recognize him. <laughs> Probably the last time I seen my dad was over 20 years. I hugged him before I went to school and when I came home and I remember his, his like his suit jacket in the car that he left with that morning. But he wasn't there, but his, his jacket was. They were grown men now. They're about the same age he was when he was convicted. And now they're grown men with families and kids of their own. That was a pretty incredible moment to be there. It's very powerful to to be there and, and just standing in a parking lot as people are reuniting with family members, oftentimes that they haven't seen and definitely have not touched in decades. The reason why this story was important for a Texas newspaper to write is because Texas has been the leader on this issue for decades. We couldn't find another state that had used it as often and as extensively as Texas law enforcement has used it. So far, it's up to individual states to dictate the use of hypnosis in court. But what does the federal government have to say about this topic? 
The United States Department of Justice states that hypnosis may be occasionally used in an investigation, but should be used on rare occasions. They say the information obtained from a person while in a hypnotic trance cannot be assumed to be accurate. Well, what about the Supreme Court? Have they ruled on any cases involving hypnosis? The U.S. Supreme Court has had multiple opportunities to take up this concept and to say that forensic hypnosis is not something that should be used, or at least that somebody who has undergone forensic hypnosis should not be able to be called as a witness or use their, their information in court, and they have not. They have chosen not to rule against that, essentially. That's right. In 1987, the case of Rock versus Arkansas, the Supreme Court overturned the lower decision, declaring that a total ban on hypnotic testimony was unconstitutional and in violation of the right to due process and the right to call witness. It's one thing to use hypnosis to stop smoking, but it's another thing to use hypnosis to lock somebody up. It makes you wonder how many innocent people are out there rotting in jail because hypnosis was used against them as evidence in court. Or even worse, how many innocent people have died from lethal injections or the electric chair because of this pseudoscience? There is actually an active case in Texas right now. It's a case of Charles Don Flores that involves hypnosis. It's a death row case. Charles Don Flores was convicted of being involved in the murder of a woman here in North Texas. He says that he was not involved, but the prosecutors claimed that he was in the room when the wo this woman was shot. He was convicted under a Texas law, law of parties, where basically an accomplice can be convicted of the same crime as the main individual. So he was convicted of murder, as well as the man who pleaded guilty to actually shooting the woman. And he is now on death row. The only way that he was connected to the crime was a neighbor actually testified that uh, she saw him that morning of the crime. And she, she testified to that. She identified him in court after being hypnotized. His appeal went all the way to the Supreme Court. And as Dave said, the, the court chose not to take it up. And just a couple of weeks ago, I actually found out that he lost his appeal. And so what we are waiting on now is it is up to essentially the state to determine whether he is going to call for this man's execution. It's likely that this man is going to be to be facing execution. No, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I, I was looking at that case too. This man could die on death row because of hypnosis as evidence, but God knows how many other people have gone through death row because mm -hmm. of this kind of evidence. I think we were able to find about a dozen people who were on death row in a case where the police used hypnosis. It might not have been the sole piece of evidence against that person, but a, a significant witness was hypnotized in the course of the investigation. There are still people in prison who were in there because the police used hypnosis in the course of the investigation. There are still people on death row currently, a man who's who's up for execution currently in the state of Texas. And we don't know how many other people are sitting in prison today because of this practice. We don't know how often it's being used today. It is still legal for a police officer to hypnotize a victim or a witness in Texas and use that information to charge you, me, or Joe Smith with a crime. If, the, if Governor Greg Abbott doesn't change his mind, that practice is not going away in Texas anytime soon. 
Dave and Lauren found that at least 54 people went to prison in Texas where hypnosis was used in an investigation since the 1970s. In the course of their reporting, four people were still on death row, and 11 people have been executed. And those are the cases that we know of. This technique was used to send people to their deaths. It is really important to note, too, that in the Flores case, as, as Lauren has noted, the prosecutor in that case, Jason January, is the exact same prosecutor in the Danny Ray King case. He's used this technique before. He didn't want to talk to us about the, the Danny Ray King case, but he has defended multiple times the use of this technique in the Flores case. But again, there's different ways to tackle this problem through legislation, right? That right. failed. But public shame and, and public exposure and the kind of work that you're doing, that's the whole point of journalism is to raise issues that, that get lost in the shuffle. I mean, this case is like from the 80s. And you guys did such an excellent job of not, not only unearthing an old case, but making it relevant to today. This is how I tried to explain it to, to my friends. You know, say someone um, says that you committed a crime. There's no physical evidence against you. Uh, there's no witnesses except for that person that is pointing the finger at you. And that person only identified you as the criminal after a police officer hypnotized them. Do you think that would be enough evidence, fair evidence to send you to prison for the rest of your life? That is what Texas police officers are doing today, still in the state, in this state. and. If the governor doesn't change his mind about the practice, they will be allowed to continue doing that until he does something about it. Yeah, it's a pain inside here that I can't explain. I really can't. And they gave me a license. They gave me 60 years. But that's just a, just a small fraction of the injustice that we face here in Texas. But it's cost to be black in the state of, in the state of Texas. It really does. It's cost me 31 years. Next time on Pretend. We're continuing our series on hypnosis. One night, I woke up because I had, felt a strange sensation of being lifted out of bed. Like being, as if someone like pulled the sheets taut from all sides, so you're gently being lifted. It felt really strange. So I opened my eyes and looked around, and there's these beings standing around my bed in my room, and I'm not being held by a sheet. I'm just off the bed by a couple feet in the air. There's nothing underneath me. and. These beings are doing something and it's it's a little personal <laughs> there's, right. there's, but did you I, have one of those I, were they extracting genetic material or yeah they, they were yeah there was there was something going on with a, a needle under my reproductive organs and there was some extraction going on we're going to talk about a respected harvard psychologist who used hypnosis to recover memories from people who claimed they were abducted by aliens. That's next time on Pretend. Did you guys know I have another podcast called Criminal Conduct? I sometimes forget to tell you. 
It's a serial-style true crime podcast where my co-host, John Taylor, and I investigate one case throughout the whole season. Anyway, we shot an episode for Discovery ID based on season one's case, and it just recently came out on Discovery ID. So if you have cable, you should check it out. You don't need Discovery Plus. It's out there. Just search for Citizen P.I., but before we go, I want to thank my newest Patreon supporters, One Purple Ghost, Brooke Tang, Alex, Rachel Sincere, and so many other listeners who took the time to support this little itty-bitty podcast. If you're listening to this, I salute you because that means you're keeping independent podcasts afloat in a sea filled with celebrity and big network shows. Do you know how rare it is for a show like mine to compete against those guys? It's pretty hard. I've been doing this for more than four years now, and it's just a hobby, but I couldn't do it without you. So if you want to hear shows like mine continue, consider donating a few bucks to your favorite indie podcasters. And if you want to support my show, you don't even have to make a monthly commitment. Patreon now allows you to make a one-time donation. Go to pretendradio.org and click the donate button. And if you can't donate money, just telling a friend goes a long way. In fact, why don't you open up Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram right now and tag at PretendPod. I'll pick a random listener and mail you a shirt and some stickers. How about that? Oh, and uh, shh. I'm working on an episode. It's about that dirty little secret your parents kept from you. You know which secret I'm talking about. The truth about Father Christmas. If you have an interesting story to tell, shoot me a voice memo at Javier at PretendRadio.org. I've gotten some crazy submissions so far. I cannot wait to hear what you have to say. All right, that's all I have for this week. I'll talk to you next time. Creative Babble.